This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies. And with me today is Anthony Gadbisio, an architect and urban planner who, after a 20-year career at the World Bank and then teaching urban development and climate change at George Washington University, now advises international organizations. Today, we will be discussing his book, A Sephardi Turkish Patriot, Gad Franco in the Turmoil of the Ottoman Empire and the Turkish Republic which is being published by Rowan and Littlefield in fall of 2023. So the first thing I'd like to ask about is yourself. If you can tell us a little about yourself, your background, what motivated you to write this book about Gad Franco? And moreover, what about his life do you think will be of interest to the public at large? With pleasure. And uh, Robin, thanks for uh, doing this interview and this podcast. I'm delighted to, to be able to, to be here with you on the New Books Network. Um, so a few words about myself. I grew up in Italy. Uh, uh, my mother was a Turkish Jew and, in fact, the daughter of Gad Franco, uh, the character of my book, who was my grandfather, although I never got, got to meet him. And my father was a a British Jewish uh, journalist, also with origins in the Levant. So I was somehow uh, indirectly connected to that part of the world, although I, as I said, was born elsewhere. And uh, I never met Gad Franco, but I would hear about him as I was growing up. And when much, much later I started digging, I really realized there was a good story to tell there, something important. Um, and uh, and I realized that um, it concerned me very personally and that it needed to be told. Now, why might the book be interesting? I think that, first of all, it covers you know a good chunk of the Middle Eastern uh, Jewish history and Sephardi experience, and this to the general Anglo-Saxon um, public is something which is less known than the Ashkenazi experience. And, and of course, what's very peculiar about Gad was his quite uncommon political engagement uh, on behalf of his country and not only of his Jewish community. So that made him a sort of uh, modern intellectual uh, whose complexity and trajectory are actually quite fascinating. And in that sense, it's quite a distinct story from the one of many, let's say, Jewish characters we read about who were very committed to their own community, but somehow remained at the margin of the polity of which they were part. Hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's different in a number of important ways. In the first place, one thing we can talk about is his background, how he grew up, because listeners may be familiar with books about uh, Jews in the Ottoman Empire in Salonika or in Izmir or even Istanbul. 
But Gad Franco, he grew up, he was born in Milos and he was educated in Rhodes. These are somewhat different locations. So perhaps you can talk about this, his youth and experiences and the experience of Jews in such places. Right. So Milas was a small and still is a small town in the Aegean part of Turkey, but an inland little town, uh, while Rhodes, of course, is an important uh, island and has been a crossroads of uh, uh, trade networks across the Mediterranean for a long, long time. Uh, there were small, scattered Jewish communities across the whole um Aegean coast, uh, Asia Minor, as it were, uh, very connected to each other in all sorts of ways, through trade, through intermarriage, through all sorts of exchanges. And um, uh, God was very lucky in as much as when he was six, his daughter, uh, sorry, uh, his his sister uh, was married off to a cousin of hers who was living on Rhodes, who was the son of uh, of a, an enlightened rabbi, uh, Moshe Judah Franco, who was based there. I will, I'll skip the family history details, but all this to say that ultimately, while God had his stayed with his parents in Milas, would have just gone to the traditional Talmud Torah school, where he would have just learned how to read uh, the sacred text and not much more. By going to Rhodes, he was thrown into a completely different kind of education. Uh, His uncle, Moshe Judah, this enlightened rabbi and scholar, had opened a progressive school. Um, God was educated in uh, uh, Turkish and French, uh, as well as Hebrew. So he really got an opportunity to connect to both languages and through the languages, a culture that was much broader than the one of his uh, original community. So this really is something that put him on his trajectory and honestly changed his destiny as it could have been otherwise. Hmm. Well, so once he'd gotten his education there, he headed to Izmir, where he worked as a journalist. And in Izmir, as a journalist, he became deeply involved in a lot of the controversies that were roiling the Jewish community in these years. So maybe can you talk about some of these controversies or just these these questions that were dividing people and people were debating in these early years of the 1900s. Right. So we should say that the um, Jewish community in Izmir was mostly Sephardic, right? So we're talking about descendants of the Jews who had gone into exile after 1492, had been taken in by the Sultan, the Ottomans, and had, uh, in initial phase, had quite a lot of prominence because of their ties with Europe and their linguistic abilities. Uh, They were quite prominent in finance, in tax collection, in trade, and so on. And then somehow had declined in terms of importance and in terms of their um, overall uh, condition. So by the mid uh, 19th century, it was really a fairly impoverished community that uh, was there across uh, across Turkey, as it were, across the Ottoman Empire. In the case of Izmir, then what we see happening is a combination of uh, uh, reforms that the Ottoman Empire started implementing, which gave opportunities to, to its minorities to integrate more. Um, uh, it should be said that, for instance, one of the schools, the, the high school where God had been in Rhodes was actually one of these new high schools that had been opened through this process of reform called the Tanzimats. And at the same time, there was uh, a, a great eagerness uh, on the side of the, let's say, Jewish intellectuals, journalists, and so on, to modernize, really. So there's a big tension between a traditionalist communal structure, which is really dominated by uh, the rabbis and uh, traditional ways of uh, uh, keeping the community together, and innovators who were uh, very much trying to get the Jewish community to open up, to modernize, to connect to different cultures, and also connect to the broader uh, polity of which they were part. So that was one tension. Specifically, we should mention the arrival of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was a uh, a French-based 
charity that was promoting education uh, for Jewish uh, children across the southern shore of the Mediterranean, all the way to Iran and so on, that put up a whole network of schools. And, and, and this education was huge, huge element of change in as much as it allowed uh, Jewish children to, uh, to learn um, different languages, uh, to open up to different cultures, and so on. And so there, too, there was tension, of course, between the traditionalists, the, the Hebrew Talmud Torah schools, and these new schools that were came, coming in. But we should say that they were really embraced uh, with a lot of enthusiasm by the Jewish communities wherever they were opened, right? And so there was certainly a big, big support for uh, this process of modernization. And Gad was very much a part of it uh, himself. He was teaching French at the Lycée in Izmir. Another big theme that emerged and on which uh, Gad wrote a lot during his journalist years in Izmir was, let's say, the uh, conflict between Ottomanism and Zionism. So Ottomanism was a kind of ideology whereby, especially when the second constitutional period emerged in Turkey uh, after the Young Turk Revolution, there was an opportunity to really think of becoming citizens rather, rather than subjects of an authoritarian empire, becoming citizens of a constitutional polity. And, and this was something which Gad found very attractive and which he tried very hard to promote among his community. Uh, on the other hand, there were the Zionists who were uh, eagerly promoting their ideology uh, across the um, Jewish community, but primarily trying to cut a deal, as it were, with the Sultan to have access to Palestine and be entitled to have more Jews migrate there and, and so on. And Gad, like a number of other intellectuals, including uh, his father-in-law, David Fresco, uh, thought of Zionism as a very, very dangerous uh, uh, nationalistic approach that would have put the Jews of of Turkey and of the Ottoman Empire more broadly in a kind of ambiguous position of uh, being perceived by the majority Muslim population as having their own agenda, an independentist uh, agenda. And this is something which uh, Gad feared very much because his whole approach was really one of trying to promote the integration and assimilation of the Jews into the Ottoman uh, polity. And then, of course, the last point to make perhaps is the complexity of this language question, right? Uh, Sephardic Jews spoke Ladino, which is, uh, let's say, uh, originating from the uh, 15th, 16th century uh, Castilian language, which had slightly changed over time, had integrated some words of Turkish or Greek, uh, and and which was really the language spoken by the community. Gad, as a journalist, was writing in Ladino, and Ladino papers were coming out every day. He was also writing in Turkish. But so there was uh, Ladino, there was French, which was the conduit towards the connection to Europe. And then, of course, there was the Turkish language, which was spoken by the vast majority of the population around the Jews, and which Jews did not speak. So uh, he was also pushing hard for Turkish Jews to uh, learn the language, and through that, of course, uh, further promote their feeling of belonging and and becoming full-fledged citizens of the empire. Well, so as you mentioned, these tensions between, say, Zionism and Ottomanism, what Ottomanism even means, they're all very much at play in the early 1900s and 1910s, because these are the years of the, the constitutionalist movement and the Committee of Union and Progress, which comes to power in 1908 and pushes for a return to the constitution and supported by lots of different uh, minority communities in the Ottoman Empire. And so you can see how someone like Gad would be interested in that in its early years. And yet, over the course of the 1910s, we can say, the committee really shifts from this 
diverse group to a much more narrow Turkish nationalist group, which is promoting these very repressive policies against uh, Gre- Greeks, Armenians, to the point in, especially the case of Armenians, where there's these policies that are described as genocidal, right? So how does GAD relate to this movement as it as it, as it's changing over time? How does he find a way to na- navigate the difficulties of engaging with a group like this? You're right. And, and it, those were really crucial years. And uh, so the Committee for Union and Progress emerged like, like you just described, Robin, as a kind of patriotic uh, uh, movement which was keen on restoring constitutional law and um, and also integrating uh, minorities. And hence we see that God, uh, like many other intellectuals, bought into this approach, right? Uh, and unfortunately, that was very short-lived. And I think if we kind of unpack those years, we see, yes, of course, that the CUP itself felt the need to respond to a more... Uh, nationalistic is uh, Islamist, if you will, tendency within Turkish society. Uh, the, while they started as totally secular, right? Uh, the leaders of the CUP were uh, totally secular minded. They realized the need to somehow connect to the deeper currents that kept Turkish. Uh, society together. But then there was, uh, of course, a kind of collapse of the equilibrium when it came to the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and its European neighbors, right? So the the, uh, the empire was quickly under attack, and there were a number of wars, the uh, Italian-Turkish War of uh, 1911, and then the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913, and then, of course, uh, the arrival of the First World War. So all all these conflicts really uh, made the CUP morph from this apparently benign and well-intentioned constitutional uh, regime into something much darker. And as you say, the horrors that happened during the First War were unspeakable. So these minorities that uh, had been trying to integrate and be integrated into the constitutional polity revolted against the empire, and the empire repressed them uh, in a terrifying way all the way up to the uh, Armenian genocide of 1915. So to get back to Gad... While he had been uh, initially a member uh, and an official representative of the CUP in Izmir, as the uh, wars kept on um, taking the forefront, uh, he uh, again retreated into a role of protecting his community as much as he could. But then he was quite aware of what was happening around him and his uh, sense of uh, empathy for the other minorities uh, and his humanity, as it were, comes across quite clearly. I mean, there's an episode I I recall in the book when a guy who had become very friendly with the governor of Izmir um, barges into his office once the governor has given the orders to deport the Armenian community of Izmir and send them off to their death in the desert. And tells the governor, I refuse to leave your office until you um, change your mind and uh, reverse your decision and get these poor people back. And this was a kind of very difficult moment for both men. And finally, uh, Gad uh, managed to convince the governor and those those Armenians were, were saved and and got back. So so while he was extremely committed to keep the communal institutions going, keep the schools open for the Jewish community in Izmir and so on, but he um, he was also uh, very keen to try to do what he could to uh, prevent the horrors from happening around him. And just I'm curious, how did uh, the war the war end for him? So I mean, in 1918, the Ottomans 
uh, are defeated. There's an you know an, ar- an armistice. Uh, what does what does Gad do? How does he react to the end of the war, given that he has these relationships with the you know CUP regime? Well, I think that what you know what triggered the next steps in his trajectory was first of all the uh, Greek invasion of Izmir and takeover of Izmir. Uh, Gad was a fairly well established journalist and lawyer at that point in Izmir. He, he had a nice house. Uh, which was taken over by the Greeks. Uh, he had to move out with his family. Uh, he endured the Greek occupation for a while and somehow managed to keep on working and, and so on, but at some point decided that enough was enough, that he couldn't, he couldn't take uh, living under this uh, fairly oppressive occupation, uh, which was you know, contrary to his own feelings of... Uh, Mm-hmm. being a, a patriot and, and a Turk uh, and decided to leave and uh, went off to uh, Paris for two years. I, I should say that, you know, this is no exception to what was happening. Let's say that uh, if you look at the size of the Jewish community uh, before the First World War and after the First World War in Turkey, it was cut down by half. Migration was an enormous uh, uh, factor that got uh, Jews to leave for France, first of all, uh, the States and uh, Central and Latin America also, uh, uh, trying to, uh, first of all, avoid the draft, uh, which was something that they had not ever experienced before, but also to uh, seek better opportunities for themselves. And that's where, you know, the role of the diaspora in all these countries I've mentioned came into play. So there was, a, uh, as I said, a lot, a lot of people who were leaving Turkey, a lot of Jews who were leaving. And so did he. He went off to Paris. Uh, he had good connections through the Alliance, uh, but also through the French firms for which he was working as a lawyer in Izmir and was able to resettle over there with his wife and kids. And they were French speaking in any case. They, uh, the, his children had been at the Alliance school, so were perfectly fluent in French. They had no difficulty in, in resettling in, in Paris. So that, that's how, that's how he responded, as it were, to the crisis that, uh, came upon them in his mirror. Well, so this brings us then to the Turk era of the Turkish Republic, the past hundred years. And I mean, I, I see the book as telling this somewhat tragic tale of Gad's decision to return and commit to contributing to the Turkish Republic. Um, and yet, as he's trying to become part of it, as he's trying to uh, help it develop, he keeps on finding himself not wholly included in the vision of the republic that its leaders are, seem to have. So maybe we can move through the 20s, the 30s, and uh, into the 40s. And uh, in the 20s, so he's in Paris. How does he get from being in Paris to being back in Turkey? What sort of services does he provide to the new regime? How does he try to bring his skills as a as a writer, as a lawyer, to bear in the creation of the New Republic. Right. So uh, you mentioned the armistice. Uh, of course, what uh, what ensued was the War of Independence, right, where Kemal Ataturk uh, was able to rally the troops, the uh, patriotic spirits around him, and beat back uh, the Greek invasion uh, uh, and, and, of course, the British and French attempts at dismembering Turkey, right? And so God follows all of these events from afar and really gave a very patriotic response to what was happening, decided that, you know, his role was in his mother country. He had to go back and he had to go and contribute to the creation of this uh, new new nation. And this is quite a unique decision. In fact, although I don't have numbers at hand, I think there were very, very few Ottoman Jews who having left and having wrenched themselves out of where they were from and resettled elsewhere, decided to kind of uh, go back and and uh, turn around uh, and, and 
take apart whatever they've been able to do for themselves while abroad, right? And so, uh, and this was a very contested decision uh, on a personal level for Gad because his wife had really no desire whatsoever to go back. She was perfectly happy in Paris. The kids were at school. Everything was going swimmingly, as they say. And so why why go back? But Gad really felt that he he had to do that. And, uh, and in fact, this, this tension around this decision is something that haunted uh, the married couple for the rest of their lives, right? Whenever things started going wrong, uh, God kept on being blamed by his wife for having uh, decided to leave Paris and go back to Istanbul in 1922. So Istanbul, that's where he goes. He sets up uh, as a lawyer, um, and then was uh, called upon by the Kemalist government in Ankara to take part in the Lausanne Peace Conference, which was where, you know, after the War of Independence, uh, Kemal was able to uh, set down his conditions, negotiate in much better terms uh, around the size of the nation, the reparations, and so on and so forth. And so uh, it's interesting to see how Gad having... Uh, acquired more skills in international law, put them to use right away uh, in advising the government in Lausanne. And uh, the specific topic on which he was very active during that conference was the future of the Mosul province, which is now part of Iraq, and which had been, of course, part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Uh, So that's something important which he did. Um, He still pursued... Uh, further uh, juridical studies and got a doctorate in law at the Sorbonne in 1925 on topic of constitutional law. Uh, We should keep in mind that the Turkish Republic, which, as you just said, was created exactly 100 years ago, October uh, 1923, created a new constitution which came out in 1924. So the issue of the rule of law, uh, the structure of the country, uh, what international references should be taken into account in setting up this profoundly secular Republic were very much uh, the topic of the day and on which God kept on studying, reviewing other experiences and international best practices and so on, and was able to uh, contribute to the juridical debate going on in Turkey, although he was not one of the... uh, Kemalist uh, jurists who were based in Ankara who were actually actively writing the constitution and then uh, another set of laws that came thereafter. But he was very much part of that conversation. And in fact, in 1926, created his Journal of Juridical Studies, which is a kind of bridge between Turkey and Europe in terms of uh, circulation of juridical and constitutional ideas and studies. So uh, those were really heroic years, I think, both for the Republic itself and also for Gad and his work, who uh, was becoming a successful lawyer, but at the same time devoting a lot of his time and efforts uh, for the public good, as it were. So he, uh, you know, Turkey adopted the uh, new civil code in 1926, which was based on the Swiss civil code. And um, the same year, he started writing a guide to the civil code, which was uh, supposed to uh, make it easier for jurists, lawyers, judges, and so on to really grasp that new set of ideas that was behind the code. So so he was a, a, a real Kemalist, totally devoted to the Republic, a believer that what Kemal Atatürk was, uh, Mustafa Kemal, he wasn't yet called Atatürk, what Kemal was doing was really setting up the foundations for uh, a modern uh, secular uh, country, uh, which God believed would have included eventually uh, all its minorities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So during the 1930s, Gad continues his legal practices. He continues publishing his journal. He he gets involved in real estate uh, deals. He's still very successful during these years. But these years, the 1930s in particular, are particularly harsh in some respects for the Jewish population. So you have this kind of his success on the one hand, but growing troubles, perhaps we can say, for the Jewish community on the other hand during the 30s. What are some of the troubles that the Jewish community is facing, and how does he relate to these? Uh, Perhaps we can talk about that a little bit. Of course. (laughs) You're right. I think that after uh, these glorious 20s, as it were, uh, uh, by the 30s, we see a real hardening of the republic. And primarily, I think, when it comes to its treatment of its minorities, right? Not only the Jewish minorities, but also what was left of the Greek community, of the Armenian community, and and of the Kurds. And so trouble with the Kurds had already started in the 20s, right? Uh, The Kurds were profoundly religious, uh, profoundly attached to their land and to their independence, as it were, and they had been obviously uh, very rebellious during uh, imperial Ottoman times and kept their uh, strong uh, resistance to a central government telling them what to do and what not to do in the 20s. And they were brutally repressed already in the 20s by uh, Mustafa Kemal and his government. And this you know, continued in the 30s. I think what we what we witness happening in Turkey is that uh, what emerged was a very strong form of ethno nationalism, right? Which became the uh, the critical ingredient that the Ankara government used to somehow create a new collective identity, right? Um, in in those years, so while Islam had had been pushed aside, because as I did say already, uh, the foundation of the republic was at least on paper extremely secular. Uh, still, uh, there was a need for something to keep the Turkish people together and give them a sense, a collective sense of identity. And this was really rooted in uh, so-called Turkism, right? So there are some foundational myths around the origin of this glorious people in, uh, in, in Eastern Asia, a pride in the their military might, which had expressed itself both during Ottoman and then Republican times, uh, first with the creation of of a sprawling empire which dominated a huge chunk of the southern Mediterranean coast all the way up to the Balkans and so on. Republican times, they were able through the War of Independence to show their strength and defend the homeland. So this is all part of this um, sense of patriotic pride. And then somehow with Turkism, and that that was a bit of the paradox, came uh, this notion that if you were a quote-unquote real Turk, you were also a Muslim. So these minorities were on paper recognized as citizens, but they were not really included in the in the polity as the polity was taking shape around this very strong sense of ethno-nationalism. Language was a big factor, and that's where we get eventually back to what happened to the Jews. Uh, The Turkish language was modernized by Mustafa Kemal, uh, who became actually through the language reform Ataturk, uh, the father of the Turks. Uh, And there was a big effort to uh, alphabetize, to educate everybody into the knowledge and use of the reformed language, not to go into the details, but basically what was gotten out was um, influences of Arabic and Farsi that had crept into the Turkish language as it was, and it was, uh, let's say, 
cleaned up, uh, simplified, a new alphabet was adopted. All these, you know, profound reforms uh, took place. But as, again, the Turkish language became a big piece of this collective identity, obviously, whoever did not speak it, right, was automatically seen as an outsider. So there's this big campaign uh, compatriots speak Turkish with signs all over the place and fines being given to people who did not speak Turkish. Um, and um, and the Jews were still there, stuck with their Ladino and their French, and therefore seen more and more as non-Turks, right? Uh, so a number of reforms, the language reform, the surname reform, uh, were things that were making life much more difficult for all the minorities, including the Jewish minority. Uh, the educational reform also kicked in, and uh, contrary to what Turkey had agreed to in the Lausanne Peace Treaty, uh, they shut down all the um, schools belonging to minorities as Turkish was the only language that should be taught and should be learned by children, right? So all these things really increased the pressure on the Jewish minority. There was uh, uh, a law which was passed in 1934, which was the resettlement law, whereby the government was given special powers of what we would today call social engineering or being able to... uh, displace entire populations to um, put them under control. This was primarily adopted uh, against the Kurds. Uh, Half a million Kurds were moved out of Kurdistan and spread around in the attempt of diluting them, as it were. But in the case of the Jews, there was a pogrom against the Jews of Thrace, uh, which displaced the 10 to 12,000 Jews that were living in that province at the time. So very brutal uh, autocratic uh, policies that were adopted by the Ankara government, uh, and uh, which were all, you know, inspired by this very strong ethno-nationalism that was sweeping across the country. Well, if these problems were happening during the 1930s, then during the 1940s, we see Gad becoming more directly personally affected by a lot of these government policies. So perhaps we can look at this period. What happened during the 1940s, during the era of World War II, that made him lose faith, really, in the the Turkish Republican project? We should just uh, mention the fact that Turkey neutral during the Second World War, although for all sorts of reasons, there was a lot of sympathy of the Turkish government for the German and Nazi uh, regime, right? And there was Nazi influence, uh, which was growing in Turkey, uh, which was, you know, really changing the the climate and the atmosphere. And of course, the Jews of Turkey were, you know, horrified just by getting the news of what was happening across Europe and how Nazism was persecuting the Jews and and so on and so forth. So that that was the climate. Uh, What happened was that uh, the government decided to go for a big military buildup to be able to defend the country against a potential invasion. And this military buildup caused uh, huge costs and uh, a collapse of public finances. So that's a little bit the background to a terrifying law that was passed in 1942, which eventually affected GAD very directly. So the law was basically a law of expropriation of properties uh, in the hands of the minorities. It was called the Verlik Vergisi, or the Wealth Tax Law. There was a scam whereby, uh, you know, wealthy minority members were slapped with huge amounts to pay within 15 days. And if they didn't pay them within 15 days, they were sent off to labor camp. And of course, when these people desperately tried to sell their properties to meet this tax obligation, uh, there was no market or if there was anything to be had, it was uh, at fire sale prices with uh, you know Muslim buyers who were ready to 
to take over. So really, this was a campaign to, quote-unquote, turkify the economy uh, that hit the minorities very badly. And, and Gad, when this law was passed by parliament, was horrified. First of all, as a constitutional scholar, um, he, uh, he thought that this was a medieval law and said so publicly. And given that he was very respected as a jurist and a man of law, um, and was very influential uh, at the time, the fact that he should express his opinion was obviously uh, unsufferable to the government. On top of it, uh, the then prime minister had been uh, a student of God during the uh, Izmir years when he was teaching French at the local lycée. So God dared to speak to the prime minister and said, said, what is this? You know, you can't do that. How could you pass a law like this through parliament? So it's interesting to see how God, even before worrying about himself, probably because the list wasn't out yet, but was really incensed at the idea that, you know, this republic uh, was trampling all over the rule of law uh, so blatantly, right? So his reaction was first, first and foremost as a jurist. And then, of course, you know, he was slapped with an enormous uh, amount of tax to pay, uh, which he couldn't pay. Uh, there was a desperate attempt at selling the buildings that he owned in, in Istanbul. And then um, he couldn't do it, and he was packed off uh, to labor camp uh, near Erzurum, up in the mountains of eastern Turkey. Um, I should say that before even being taken as a prisoner and, and sent off, uh, his apartment was spoliated of all its belongings by the government. There was a, an auction that was that took place. Their, their personal furniture and carpets and all their personal belongings were sold off. And so they were, you know, in the space of two weeks, they uh, had become paupers and he, he was put on this train and took off, taken off to to labor camp. So this is, you know, a real tragic, dramatic event that happened uh, to God, and obviously not only to him, but to a bunch of other people. Um, and it was a transmort- transformative moment for him. Uh, he was obviously devastated by what happened, by the idea of having put his family through all of this, but primarily he was devastated at the idea that the Republic could turn against its minorities so violently, right? And undoing whatever he thought was gradually happening, which was the creation of a uh, solid Republic based on the rule of law, <clears throat> so on and so forth. So so the 40s were really the uh, collapse of everything that God had been working for all his life. Hmm. And I mean, you mentioned his family, and one thing we haven't gone into too much detail about really are the family dynamics, which are, I found very interesting, but, you know, complex, and therefore something maybe to be read rather than discussed in too much detail. Nonetheless, I do wonder how you think about the experience of his family, your family. Uh, Is it is it just a specific experience or does it speak to sort of mm, larger experiences of Turk- of Turkish Jews? How do you think through that? Well, I, I think that, of course, we have all the details about Gad and his family members and what happened to them in the book. But I think they're quite representative of this total collapse uh, in people's lives, be, be it Gad Franco's or others, right, that uh, old minority members uh, went through at the time, be they Greeks or Armenians or Jewish. Uh, for all these people, uh, they were all of a sudden told in the most brutal of ways that they didn't belong, that the country they thought was their country uh, was definitely turning against them in this horrible fashion. And, you know, uh, in the case of Gad, it was the collapse of an entire edifice of beliefs, of belonging, of social status, way of life. Uh, And it was crushing for him and for all his 
other family members, but I'm sure that all the families that went through that had similar experiences, right? Uh, so obviously the impact on individual personalities and relationships was huge. It was very hard to keep things together. Fortunately, as I you know, mentioned also in the book, uh, there was a minority of let's say, real Turks, quote-unquote, or Muslim Turks, uh, who were just as horrified as they were by, you know, what the government was doing and that was trying to be helpful. There were friends who remained friends and who uh, helped out in a number of ways, cutting across uh, faith, beliefs, uh, communal identities, and so on. Uh, And this, I think, was extremely important for the mental well-being of these people who were otherwise being treated as foreigners, as thieves, as uh, people who should be you know, punished, crushed, and, and expelled, ultimately. So there were really very, very hard times. Now, if we compare the experience of the Jews of Turkey with the Jews of Germany, Austria, or any part of Europe, frankly, during those decades, this is still mild stuff, right, uh, in comparison. Uh, but yet, it was extremely hard to to go through. Uh, you know, Gad came back from labor camp, but he was disbarred. He couldn't work as a lawyer. Uh, he was prevented from traveling abroad because uh, the government was afraid that he would badmouth what the Turkish government had done. He was financially ruined. I mean, it was a real, real, very, very uh, tough time for him and for his family members. So, as yes, I do say in the book, uh, there was. Uh, a scattering of family members who some who went to Palestine, others who went to uh, the United States and elsewhere. My mother got married, went off to live in Egypt. Uh, there was a, a, a general attempt at getting away from Turkey because all these people that had loved that country and lived in it, uh, believing that it was their country, ultimately realized that, you know, their belonging had been completely denied, uh, which was very hard. And uh, obviously for Gad, what ensued were years of misery, of loneliness, of regrets, and, you know, contemplating the failure of this attempt at constructing an inclusive uh, society where there would have been room based on the rule of law for all sorts of different communities, and this had not happened. You know, one thing I particularly liked about the book was the way you're able to deal with these big, complex subjects and very sensitive issues and family details and historical developments. And you take all these things, and you, I think you do a very good job of balancing them against each other, telling a narrative that is clear without losing... Um, the sense of subtlety that's necessary for it to make sense and be of value. So one thing I was wondering as I was reading is you, you're, you know, you're not a Ottoman history expert or a Turkish history expert, and yet you do a very good job of all these things. And I'm just wondering what your, what your process is, how you went about thinking through this book as you were writing it. Uh, I, I'm very curious because it's very good in those regards, I think. Well, this is very nice to hear, you know, and yes, that was a big challenge because although have been a university professor for years and have always been reading and writing uh, in my career. This is definitely not my area of expertise. Uh, you know, I was very lucky uh, on two fronts. One, because I, I met uh, one of the most prominent, uh, or maybe the most prominent, Turkish chronicler and historian of Turkish Jewry, Rifat Bali, whom you also know. And he, about 10 years ago, published a small biography in Turkish of Gad based on his research. So meeting him and uh, reading his book, obviously in a translation that I asked for, uh, was really access to some important pieces of the story which I did not have um, 
and, and then, of course, I had lots of, uh, you know, childhood memories of what was being said about God. And I was able to retrieve uh, family letters and family photographs, a kind of typical, typical process, if you will. But maybe what, what stands out, at least if I think about the time I invested in, in getting this book together, was realizing quite quickly that telling God's story, personal story, really made only sense if I put it in the context of what was happening around him, right? So the, the story of the broader Jewish community and the backdrop being the big milestones and wrenching transformations through which the country went during his lifetime, also because he was really a very um, active figure. He wasn't simply passively living his personal life while all of this was happening. He was really trying very hard to to be to be part of it and uh, to try to influence the, the, the shape that things would take and so on. So I found this fascinating. It took me obviously a lot of reading and research, and as you say, trying to find that good good balance between the biography and the history and so on to make it really accessible to the book's readers. So I'm happy to hear that hopefully uh, readers will think as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I certainly enjoyed it. So I, I do. I hope other people will go and find the book. As I don't think we've uh, I've said, it's coming out in, I believe, uh, is it middle of November it's coming it's out? It's already on sale for pre-order on publisher's website as well as all the other websites yeah well so that being the case i do hope people will go and check it out and read it because i I quite enjoyed it um and i just want to finish up by asking you with this book written are you turning your attention to other topics similar topics what are you working on now you know i'm not sure yet but i do know that i've opened a window into part of my my personal my family history and my people's story, as it were. And I don't think I'm ready to close it just yet. I still don't have a new project in the works, but I'm exploring different ideas, and hopefully I'll be able to do some more. Well, in the meantime, this book exists. It's out, and yeah, I I very much enjoyed it. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Robin, for taking the time and uh, doing this thing together. I'm delighted that we can uh, we had the opportunity to discuss the book's contents and make them available through the podcast. Thanks again.